0: Our text for today is Revelation chapter 16, continuing our study through the book of Revelation. Hear now God's holy word. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. Then then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, you are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due." And I heard an, I heard another from the altar saying, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we pray that our voices would join with the voices of the heavenly host in praising you for your just and true judgments. Help us to see as we read these things today and to absorb and mark and learn and understand how you are working your purposes out in the world. And so as we enter this, this time of study and hearing from your word, fill us with your spirit and we might make right application that I might speak these things clearly. And in truth, deliver us from all error, deliver us from all distraction, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, imagine that you live with your family on a farm outside of a small village and most of what you eat You raise yourself. Most of what you wear, you make yourself. And wherever your imagination goes, whether it's the American frontier, the Old West, or whether you put yourself in a developing country somewhere in the world or in the Middle Ages, whatever your imagination gravitates toward, put yourself in that context. You're living, you're raising food, you're clothing your family, you're doing the best you can with the piece of property God has given you. And in the territory where you live, There's no lawful authority that maintains peace and order. The place where you live then becomes overrun by powerful, well-armed gangs of thugs, thieves, warlords, savages who take what they want. They destroy things for fun. They kill, they kidnap, they spoil, and they make life absolutely miserable for everybody. You do your best to defend your home with the weapons that you have and you wish that your neighbors would band together and help you push these guys out. There's strength in numbers, but your neighbors are so scared and they're so cowed in fear that they would rather the gang take whatever they want and leave us alone. If we oppose them, they'll make things worse, they think. So you're on your own. You're on your own to protect your homestead, which is all you have in the world. Everything you have is there and you live your life in constant dread, and horror and terror, and waiting for the next tragedy to fall. That's what you expect. Now, imagine that the sheriff comes to town with lots of deputies, or a noble magistrate, or a prince, or a lord, or a governor, finds out what's going on in the territory where you live and he comes with all the righteous fury and force of the weight of the law and he brings it against this band of thieves and murderers. Every last outlaw is rounded up. They all receive their day in court, they all get a fair trial and they're all convicted of their crimes to the fullest extent of the law. While you can't replace the lives that are lost, everything they've stolen is returned to the people it was stolen from and full restitution or, or as near it as possible is made. And then all of the criminals are executed one by one by one for their murderous behavior. Now, put yourself in that situation. Do you believe that you would criticize the tenacity of the sheriff in hunting those guys down? Do you think that you would have a problem with the harshness of the judge or the work of the executioner in carrying out justice against these criminals? Or... Would you be rejoicing that peace and order has been restored and that the wicked are being punished, that your family can rest? You're grateful now that tranquility has returned to your home and you can eat your own bread and milk your own cow and farm your land and worship God and you don't have to worry about anything like this. Uh, Again, in the near future, where where would you be? Would you be critical or would you be happy? Would you be rejoicing? I can tell you where I would be. I'd be rejoicing. I'd be happy. I'd be overjoyed. I would be elated. Now, expand this little example by many orders of magnitude up to the whole earth. The, The global wicked sin syndicate, the powers of darkness who oppress and steal and murder and abuse and destroy whatever they want, whenever they want. They take money, they take lives, uh, they take whatever pleases them, pleasure as it pleases them. And there's no authority on earth that's big enough or powerful enough to stop them. So the cry for justice goes up and God hears the cries for relief. God is the swift and tactical avenger who comes and sets everything right. And God comes to restore peace and order. God's Furious judgment is known as his wrath. And it's the attribute of God that we don't wanna talk about a lot. and We don't wanna really dwell on a great deal. It's the, it's the part of God that we fear making too big of a deal about. And if we talk a lot about God's wrath, then it's gonna make him sound really mean or really nasty or somehow unattractive if we talk about his wrath. So we wanna talk about his love and his patience, his grace and his forgiveness, and as I said last week, I love talking about those things. I delight to to dwell on those things. They are they're they're wonderful, they're glorious. But we leave out the part about the wrath of God. We we leave out talking about his wrath because that's unsavory and that's very difficult to think about. That's that's difficult to talk about. But what we miss is that God's wrath is his demonstration of his hatred for everything that is rightfully and truly hateful. We, We don't like oppression and murder and theft and darkness and willful ignorance and destruction. We don't like those things. Well, God hates them worse than we do. God hates them more than we do. And and to not hate evil, as, as God defines it, evil is defined by his law, his standard, to not hate evil is to be complicit in it. So we don't want to tolerate it. We want to be liberated from it. And in wrath, God pours out his indignation on everything that is contrary to life, everything that is contrary to peace and order and happiness and blessing. God destroys the destroyer. Why would that not make us happy? Why would that not make us elated and joyful to know that? Why would we complain about that? Why would we have a problem with that? Why would we not love God for his wrath? It makes no sense. We love the God who is mightier than all of the powers of destruction and the God who alone is able to overcome them and vanquish them and bring them to nothing. So I said last week that we would be hearing about God's wrath in these next several chapters. And my hope is that we come to love him more because of his wrath and not less, that we rejoice in him as the host of heaven does. The host of heaven praises him as these bowls of wrath go out to be poured on the land. And we, if, if we're praying for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, we ought to be able to join them in that, in that praise for his wrath let's first understand what's going on here. We've come to the point of the book of Revelation where the final judgments on Jerusalem, the final judgments on the old world of the old covenant, those judgments are being poured out on the land. There have been warnings, there have been preliminary judgments, but now that the position of the people and the priests has been calcified, it's clear where they stand. They have said, we have no king but Caesar And they're not moving off of that position. We reject our Messiah. We reject our King that God has given us. And now to prove that they've pursued the church in such a way that the land flows with the blood of the martyrs, as we saw in chapter 14. The land flows from North to South with martyrs blood. And so the remaining angels get up out of their seats in the heavenly sanctuary and they're given seven bowls of wrath to go pour out on the land. And when they're finished, the old system of the old covenant will be entirely brought to an end. And on earth, what that looks like is the final siege and destruction of Jerusalem in the year AD 70. So in chapter 16, we pick this up. The angels come out of the heavenly sanctuary with bowls of wrath to pour out on the land. This is the wrath of God that they're going to pour out on the land. Where did they get these bowls? Why are there bowls in heaven? What's going on? Uh, What's the relevance of these bowls? Well, everything in the earthly sanctuaries reflects something in the heavenly sanctuaries that Moses uh, Moses and and Solomon built earthly sanctuaries to reflect heaven's courts. So in in the earthly sanctuary, remember there were bowls, uh, to To catch the blood of the sacrifices there were uh, bowls and pans used for incense. Exodus 25 talks about the golden dishes, the pans, the poles, the, the, the pitchers that had various uses in the rituals of the tabernacle. There are vessels to hold up offerings before God. There are, are bowls used for the tribute offering. After you put the ascension offering on the altar, you then take your grain and you take your wine and you pour that out onto, on, on the top that's your tribute offering. And you pour on top of the Ascension offering. Uh, there, there are vessels to transport water for cleansing, for purifications, for washings, for baptisms. There are vessels for oil, for anointing. So lots of rituals and lots, lots of sacrifices require bowls and dishes both to carry something to God, either to carry blood or grain or wine or or incense into God's presence, or bowls to carry things from God back to us, water for cleansing, oil for anointing. These dishes are mediators that bring your offerings to God and his blessings to you, and these are all good things. These are earthly reflections of what's going on in heaven. So we peek behind the curtain in heaven, we see there are bowls there too. There are things being taken up to God, and there are things being sent back down from God for us. But now in Revelation 16, all these bowls are gonna be turned upside down and dumped out on the land because the sacrifices that have gone up have been rejected. The offerings have been rejected. And what would otherwise be God's blessing being dumped out on them is now going to be God's judgment dumped out on them. They're gonna be anointed all right, but not with oil. They're going to be anointed with fire. They're not going to be washed with water. They're going to be, uh, the water's going to turn to blood. They'll have the blood of the martyrs dumped out on them because they've killed all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. We saw Jesus say that last week in Luke uh, 11. They've crucified their king. They've killed his servants. They keep offering up blood Uh, uh, human blood and human sacrifice to God. And it's not, it's not meeting uh, God's requirement. And and in fact, it's horrible and it's nauseating. So now they're being ordained. Now they've got something being uh, dumped out on them, but it's not for blessing. They're being set apart. They're being ordained for destruction. And that's what's happening. So you remember that when we had the preliminary judgments back when we studied the seals and we studied the trumpets, those were kind of dragged out, and, and uh, they, were, they, they, they were kind of extended. When we start reading about the seal judgments, the warnings there, it starts in chapter 6, and then it goes all the way through chapter 7 and part of chapter 8, and then we get the trumpet section, and that's chapter 8 and 9 and 10, 11, 12. It goes all the way up to 13. All of these, All of these judgments from the seals and the trumpets, these are warnings. These are cautions, these are pleadings. Uh, God is giving them time to turn and any faithful within the land of Israel to repent. But when it comes time for the actual judgments to fall, They come quickly and without any reservation. There's no holding back. In the seals and in the trumpets, you'd read, a third of this was destroyed. A third of that was destroyed. A tenth of the city died. Here, it's total. It's complete. There's no more reservation. Everything is affected. And they come quickly in rapid succession, one right after another. The Lord is extremely patient. He is exceedingly merciful, and he has uh, extended repeated calls to repentance. Yet, at some point, the time is up. At some point, it's over, and there's no more delay. And when that comes, uh, then it's only judgment, and that's all you get. And that's what we see here. So let's pick up in chapter 16. We'll read, we'll work through the chapter. Verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. There's a voice that comes out from the heavenly sanctuary. The temple is filled with the glory cloud. As we saw last week, Uh, no one can enter, there's nobody in there. Uh, All the angels have emptied out to do their work. So the voice that comes out of the heavenly temple can only be the voice of the lamb enthroned over the heavenly ark. Uh, He commands the angels to carry out the final judgments by going out and pouring out these bowls on the land. Apostate Israel thought that they were being faithful by offering up the blood of the martyrs, but now that's going to be turned around and dumped out on their heads. Uh, He's going to pour out his wrath upon them. And then verse two, then uh, the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who had worshiped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it became the blood, uh, blood as of a dead man and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. You see what I'm talking about? It's, it's one right after another. It's bam, 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 bam. When the judgments start, they start rolling one right after another. And as these first few judgments come, they bring to mind the plagues that God sent on Egypt. Why? Well, Israel has become Egypt. They've become idolaters. They are the oppressors. They worship human power and human authority. And Moses warned them all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. He says, if you don't keep covenant with God, the plagues of Egypt are going to fall on you. And this is the fulfillment of that. Listen to what Moses says. He says, Yahweh will strike you with the boils of Egypt, with tumors, with the scab, with the itch from which you cannot be healed. And that's the first judgment here is a a skin disease, a breakout. So those who receive the mark of the beast get a mark from God as well. They get uh, get a breakout of skin disease, which is not life-threatening. It's not debilitating physically, it's not. It does cause pain, but it does something more significant than that it excludes you from the sanctuary. Every Jew knows that if you have an outbreak in the flesh, you are unclean and you can't come to worship at the sanctuary, you can't participate in the feast days, you can't draw near to God, you are cut off from communion and fellowship in the life of the people of God. So God is openly, deliberately pushing unbelieving Israel away. You are unclean, you are lepers. I'm going to show on the outside what's going on on the inside, on the inside, your heart is far from me. On the inside, your heart is leprous and scabby and foul and festering, and so I'm going to show the world what your heart is like. And so on the outside, your covenant breaking and your idol worshiping has made you this way. Leave my presence. Get away uh, because of your uncleanness. And then not only that, but the sea, the salt water doesn't give up food. It has become clotted and putrefying like dead man's blood. Blood is mentioned four times in this chapter, again, reminding us of the blood of the martyrs in chapter 14. This wicked nation, this wicked land is getting back from heaven what they sent up to heaven. And so the sea turns to blood. The sea in prophetic literature, and particularly in Revelation, is always associated with the Gentile nations. So they're getting from the Gentile nations not refreshing food; they're getting toxicity. They're getting something, something bad. Their, their compromising relationship with the Gentile nations, uh, when they said we have no king from but, but but Caesar, has has turned foul, and it's 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 not a blessing; it's a curse to them because they chose the wrong king. They backed the wrong play. And, and, and now this whole thing is a curse. This relationship is a curse. Not only that, but the, not only is the sea turned to blood, but the fresh water, the rivers, the fountains of water, the springs of water, which are always a blessing in scripture. It's always a blessing to have a, a, a well or a spring or a river, but not now. Uh, these, these, uh, th- all the sources of drinking water are toxic because the people of the land have been drinking the blood of the saints and God does what he often does here. And that is turn a society over to the fullness of their own sin. Many of God's judgments don't require God to do anything necessarily other than to remove the barrier between us and what we want. Uh, he says, you, you like this disgusting, putrefying, awful, ugly, disgusting thing? Well, here, let me just let you have it. That will be your judgment. That is what you're going to have. And then we consume ourselves with it and it becomes its own judgment. So he says, you like drinking up the blood of the saints? Well, that's what you get to drink. That's what you get. And the angel praises God for this. Verse five, and I heard the angel of the water saying, you are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to come because you have judged these things for they shed the blood of the saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. You see, that's how it works. You do this and you get this back for it is their just due. They got what they deserved. And I heard another from the altar saying, even so Lord God almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. This does not mean spirited. This this is righteous praise. It's not offensive to rejoice in God's justice. Christians in the Middle East, or Christians in China, or Christians in East Africa, or anywhere in the world where the church is, is facing severe persecution, they would not hesitate to take up this prayer if God were to wipe out their oppressors. They would sing and they would dance like Moses and Miriam on the banks of the Red Sea. We've got a problem with this because we don't know what real persecution looks like. We've got a problem with this because we don't know what real violence looks like, what real victimhood looks like. If you're really a victim, if you've really been stomped in the face by a tyrant's boot and that tyrant gets removed, you rejoice. And that's why they're rejoicing here and all of heaven joins in the rejoicing. Verse eight, then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and power was given to him to scorch men with fire and men were scorched with great heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues and they did not repent and give him glory last week we saw the heavenly sanctuary opened. We saw the lid come off the heavenly ark so that God's law, which is housed within the ark, shines out in its full brightness, fully exposing the whole land to all of its judgments. It's a frightful thing to come face to face with God without a covering. We need a covering. We need the covering of the Lord Jesus. But now the land continues to be exposed and the covering of the firmament is gone. God has promised to be a refuge. He's a shade. He protects his people under the shade of his mighty wings. He's a cooling shade from the heat of the sun. Psalm 121 says, Yahweh is our keeper, the shade on our right hand so that the sun does not smite us by day or the moon by night. But now the covering is gone. The, 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 the protection is, is, is removed uh, and the land is unshielded. The land is unguarded. It is entirely exposed to the white hot judgment of God against wickedness and sin. And you would think that the response to this would be repentance, but that's not what he gets in return. He gets more blasphemy. Verse 10. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. Remember the darkness of the plague, uh, the ninth plague in Egypt uh, that was uh, described as so dark that you could reach out and touch it. If you've ever been in a um, cavern, if you've ever taken a, Uh, a tour through a cave and you get down to this point where they think it's real funny to turn off all the lights for a couple of minutes. It feels like a couple of minutes, probably only a few seconds, right? And the the darkness is so palpable. It's like you could touch it and you start to hallucinate after like five seconds. It starts to get really creepy until the lights come back on and you wonder, why did I do this? And why did I come down here? And what am I doing? Well, the the darkness is so thick in Egypt that that you could touch it. And this darkness is poured out on the throne of the beast. Which beast? Sea beast or the land beast? Well, there's some clues. If we wanted to take a deep dive here, I think there's some clues that point to being the sea beast, Rome. But really, Rome and apostate Israel have formed this unholy union, and so the whole beastly system is plunged into darkness. In fact, the closer we get to AD 70, the whole world descends into war and revolution, worldwide convulsions, especially after Nero takes his own life in 68 AD. The the fire in Rome takes place in 64 AD. Rome burns for six days, and the whole world has gone mad the closer we get to AD 70. So this darkness, is poured out everywhere. Um, Everything is is becoming dark. Uh, the, The darkness that falls on the thrones of man is a putting out of the sun, moon, and stars of the society. Rulers are supposed to shine like the glory of the sun. They're supposed to give life and warmth and growth to the people. But the rulers are being extinguished one by one. They're failing. And many of the kingdoms and empires of the earth are going into a very dark age until the dawning of the kingdom of God. Verse 12, then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. In Jericho, remember when the spies are talking to Rahab and Rahab says, you know, when we heard that Yahweh dried up the Red Sea for you, our hearts melted. We absolutely despaired that you were coming our direction when we when we heard about that we knew we were done for god dried up the red sea and god dried up the jordan river so that God's army could walk unimpeded into the land of promise and take it over. Well, now Jerusalem has become like the cities of Canaan and it's under judgment. So God is drying up rivers again so that all the kings of the earth can come unimpeded and trample right through the vineyard, trample right through the, uh, the cursed city of Jerusalem. Just walk right over her and God is, is removing all the barriers. Verse 13. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty." Now Revelation is a book with a lot of strange images and this, and I say this reverently, this is the strangest image in the whole book as far as I'm concerned. And as I've studied it this week, it may be now my most favorite of the images in the book of, of Revelation. What is going on here when you see three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet? What in the world do we make of this? Well. These unclean spirits are like frogs and we're in plague territory. We're remembering the plagues that fell on Egypt. Frogs are unclean. You can't eat frogs. Frogs make everything that they touch unclean so that if they get into a dish, you have to purify the dish. If they get into a garment, you have to purify the garment. So these, we're, we're thinking about these. Now remember, these are unclean spirits sent out into the land, but we're supposed to associate them with the plague of frogs in Egypt. These are like frogs. Well, what was going on with the plague of frogs in Egypt? In Egypt, the frogs invaded everything, the homes, The bedrooms, the beds, ovens, the mixing bowls. You couldn't open up a cabinet to get a cereal bowl without frogs falling out of the cabinet. You couldn't take a drink of water without dumping the frog out of your cup before you took a drink of water. You couldn't put on your shoes without making sure there's not frogs in them. You gotta dump out the frogs. If you go to bed, you gotta shake the sheets out to shake the frogs out of the bed before you can lay down. And then you wake up and you got frogs on your head and you got frogs in your armpits. You got frogs everywhere in the pockets of your pajamas when you wake up. You got frogs everywhere. That was how pervasive the frogs were. They invaded, they overran the land. And now, like the plague of frogs, these spirits, these evil spirits, overrun the land with lies and rumors and innuendo and mischief, like Egypt was overrun with frogs. And this is just such a great metaphor with what we're putting up with today. You get the same sense in our society today. You can't enjoy anything that isn't polluted in some way by social Marxism, identity politics, weirdo perverts pushing their rot, and decay into everything. Can't I just enjoy watching a basketball game? No, you can't. You can't enjoy it at all. You have to be reminded constantly of what a racist you are. You have to be reminded. Can't I just watch a movie? No, you can't just watch a movie. There has to be fornication at least. I mean, that's the low bar, that's the bottom shelf. Gotta be fornication, if not the full-on queer agenda, just so you know what a bigot you are for not liking this and not putting up with it. You see, you can't enjoy everything or anything You can't enjoy a single thing because there's frogs in it. It's everywhere. You open up the cabinet, there's frogs. You turn on a movie, there's frogs. The land is overrun with the evil spirits like Egypt was overrun with the frogs. So that's my new favorite metaphor um, ever. And so maybe the next time you're watching a kid's movie and you see some weird little thing happening, you're like, what is going on? That's a frog. There's a frog in it. You got to dump the frog out and uh, maybe then you can enjoy it. Well, these spirits who are as, as pervasive and invasive as frogs, these spirits come out of the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. This is verbal. Warfare, this is a battle of ideas and doctrines. So far we've seen things coming out of the mouth of Jesus. Four times a sword has come out of his mouth. His word is warfare. We've seen fire come out of the mouth of Jesus. Judgment comes out of his mouth. We've seen a flood of lies come out of the dragon's mouth. And now we hear and see spirits, evil spirits, unclean spirits come out of the mouths. So the battle that's being waged is primarily a war of words. The gospel, the word of life on the one hand and the lies of the dragon on the other hand. And into the middle of this verbal warfare, Jesus speaks in verse 15. He says, behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Jesus says, my coming is quick. My coming is unexpected. I'm coming as a thief. You need to be ready all the time. So stay dressed. These final crushing blows on Jerusalem are on their way. And when your exodus comes, when your, when your Passover is ready, you want your shoes on your feet. You want your staff in your hand. I mean, how many nighttime deliverances are there in the Bible, right? Where, where kings and empires are asleep, where the wicked are blissfully unaware of what's about to happen to them, and where God is moving and working in the darkness. God doesn't need to sleep. So God can work while the kings sleep. And, and so God can come and bring his judgment and his deliverance swiftly. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Watch, because it's, it's coming. You see, the frog demons are stealthy and they're invasive, but Jesus is stealthier. And he's even more invasive, and he's about to plunder Jerusalem. Here's the good news. You think the frogs get into everything. Watch what happens when the gospel gets into everything. Watch what happens when the leavening of the the kingdom of heaven gets into everything. Well, that's even going to be much, much better and much greater. Uh, So don't despair about the frogs. Just squish their heads and then go on. Verse 16, and they gathered them together to a place called in Hebrew, Armageddon or Har- Megiddo. Armageddon is a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word, Har Megiddo, or Mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo is an area north of Jerusalem, and it was the scene of many uh, military conflicts. Joshua fought there, Deborah fought there, Jehu fought there, um, but perhaps the most significant event that happened there was an unnecessary, heartbreaking loss. When King Josiah and his army fight against Pharaoh Necho's army, in deliberate disobedience to what God said, uh, Josiah went out to fight Pharaoh Necho and Josiah was mortally wounded there in that battle. And the death of noble, righteous, good King Josiah up until this terrible mistake at the end of his life, his terrible sin, up until this point, he's a faithful king. And the death of Josiah spirals Judah irreversibly into destruction and bondage to Babylon. So Megiddo, the place where Josiah was defeated, was a symbol of destruction and defeat. It was a Waterloo. It is a place where a king full of hubris and defiance to God meets his destruction. So there never was, and there never will be, a battle of Armageddon. In fact, I mean, it doesn't talk about a battle of Armageddon because there is no such place. But as a historical reference, describing Israel's impending defeat because of their arrogance, Megiddo, is a perfect symbol of that. God is saying, I have removed all barriers to Rome taking you over. The complete and final Roman conquest is coming. Remember what happened at Megiddo? Remember what happened to Josiah? Remember that? That's about to happen to you because I'm turning you over to Rome because of your defiance, just as I turned Judah over to Babylon in the days of Josiah. And that's that reference, verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. This last bowl that's poured out is punctuated with the declaration, it is done. The outpouring of wrath is complete. Every dimension of creation from Jerusalem's perspective every dimension of creation has been judged. Judgment is finished, it's complete. The old world of the old covenant is shaken up, knocked over, brought down clear to its foundations. Verse 19, now the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away and the mountains were not found and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone it was about the weight of a talent. Men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. Um, I don't uh, read Revelation through today's headlines, nor do I necessarily want to read it through first century headlines, though occasionally there are some things that may have parallels. Josephus the Jewish historian, who is not a Christian, writes about things in the first century, and he writes about the siege and destruction of Jerusalem. So he says, while the city was being besieged uh, by Titus, there were three political factions within the city who were vying for power, which is what you want to do when your city is surrounded by a conquering army. You want to do politics. That's a good use of time and resources. And so the city was divided into three, three parts, and that may be what's going on in this uh, city being divided into three. Also, uh, there were huge rocks, uh, about 100 pounds being hurled into the city by the Roman catapults. And that may be the great hail from heaven, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. That that may be those references, though there's, uh, again, the message is much bigger than that. As far as Jerusalem is concerned, the firmament has broken up. The lights have gone out. The world is over. Uh, The Lord Jesus has come face to face with his own stubborn, rebellious people, and now there's no place to hide. There's no more covering. There's no more power structure or wealth or society to cover yourself in. They're caught naked. They're completely exposed and entirely destitute because their world is over and their world is never coming back. It's a total collapse of their society. The old heavens and the old earth have passed away. And it's so this new kingdom, this is taken away so that the new kingdom can be built in its place. The new Jerusalem is coming. The church in her fullness is going to descend and she, the church is going to reign over the earth. God's new empire is going to be established. But even after all of this, even after everything is taken down to the foundation, everybody is still blaspheming God, even at the men blaspheme God because of the plague. Um, The constant response of the wicked to all of this outpouring of wrath, their response is not repentance, but more wickedness, more blasphemy, more stupidity. When hundred pound rocks are falling on your town is not a time for more blasphemy. It's a time for repentance. But you see, God has abandoned these men to their own destruction, and he's abandoned them to their hatred for God. So their contempt for his word and his people is just manifest. It's just who they are. Their rebellion runs so deep, it consumes them to such a point that they're going to go into eternal judgment with curses for God on their lips, not repentance. was well, such a, a, a sobering picture. It's such a, um, a stark and, and striking image. So here we see revealed the Lord's program for bringing justice to the world and setting things right. There seems to be two different ways, two different approaches God brings to judgment. One is, a, is to allow the wicked to run out right to the end of their leash, to let them destroy all the things that they love and to Get back on their own heads what they poured out on others. Uh, so Israel, you want to commune with demons? Fine. Your land will be covered with demons, like the land of Egypt was covered with frogs. You want to kill the martyrs? Okay. Well, God gives you blood for blood. You, want, you like that? That's what you get. So that's the first thing. But the second manifestation of God's judgment is the direct, swift end to wickedness. Eventually, God comes and says, this stops. This stops. Now it's over. The city that has exalted itself in rebellion toward me is going to be absolutely leveled down to the bedrock. It's over. It's done. Total final judgment. So we live with the awareness of both programs of God's judgment and we live in expectation of both forms of God's judgment. And we see the first one playing out right now in our world. I think the wicked are getting free reign to destroy everything that they say they love. When they get a little power, when they get a little, a little win in the win column, when they get a little W, they end up going crazy. Satan and his minions overplay their hand. They take it too far. They don't know when and where to stop. It's like turning a four-year-old loose in Chuck E. Cheese with a handful of quarters and say, just go after it, just do whatever. They just run out to the end of their leash. They don't know how to stop. You might say, slow down, slow down, cool it, save it, wait, soft pedal this, but they don't know how. They indulge in everything. They don't have the ability to care for or tend to or cultivate anything long-term. They end up crushing the thing that they say that they love. So all the institutions that the godless love are suffering right now. Public education, state universities, the arts, everything from Broadway to Hollywood is in shambles and it's not clear how it's ever going to recover. Proverbs 12 tells us about this. It says, the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. They don't know how to love anything. They can only be cruel to the point of destroying it. And understand when I'm talking about the behavior of the wicked, I'm including us when we behave wickedly, when we act like idolaters. The way to destroy something is to love it more than God. If you wanna ruin something, if you turn it into an idol, you will kill it. And it doesn't matter if it's your family, your marriage, your career, your hobbies. The only way to have life is to give thanks to God first in all things, to seek to please him in all things, and to live with gratitude. Unbelieving Israel put their oral law tradition and their institutions before their king, and they lost everything. So we have that awareness. We see that God does that. He he ruins the wicked by giving them what they love and more and more and more of it. And we also live in the expectation of the second form of judgment, which is total final stoppage to the evil. At some point, the wicked get scraped off the earth. Until then, we watch... We keep our lamps burning, we keep our shoes on, we keep our staffs in our hands, and we get ready to move out into the new world and take dominion. Don't get caught sleeping. Don't let the comforts and entertainments of this world rock you to sleep, thinking that this is all normal. I don't know if I have to tell you, but you know, gay pride parades aren't normal. Abortion on demand and killing babies is not normal. Abuse of the widow, the orphan, the stranger, these are not normal. Proliferation of wicked images is not normal. Nothing established in rebellion to God is normal and it all has a very uh, short shelf life and God is going to judge it permanently, finally, at some point. So God tells us these things so that we pay attention and we know how to live, and we know what to watch for when it's our turn, when our world is ending and being replaced by something better, we train ourselves to join with the host of heaven in giving thanks so that we can say, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and thank you for revealing your program and your plan for us and for the world. We thank you for showing us how you dealt with wickedness in the past and will continue to judge. And so, Father, give us a right and holy uh, fear of you such that we would live in obedience and joy and life in, the, in, the, in, the, in, in, in your way, in your wisdom, in your commands, in your law. So strengthen us to this end. Build up our families and our children to love you more and more every day. In Jesus' name, amen.